The title of the study this morning is The Ideal Church. The Ideal Church. The one thing everybody wants and nobody has. The old joke is that if you want to be in an ideal church, then you shouldn't be a member. And that really is, is maybe a little harsh, but the fact is that all of us bring our own biases and our own expectations and experiences and disappointments and hopes to a church. And much of that is framed by where we've been before. Past congregations, past ministries that either really blessed us and encouraged us and strengthened us and we look on them fondly or, or they hurt and damaged us. And in some cases, did both. Now, that doesn't have to make us jaded about church. I've been in a lot of different churches, a lot of different experiences. Some have been wonderful, some have not been wonderful. But it can't destroy the love for what God's done in calling his people to be together in a local assembly. No church is perfect because we are sinners saved by grace. But when we look at the end of Acts 2, we see that the early church certainly set a powerful example of how church should be. And in these six verses, Acts 2, 42 to 47, the Spirit gives us an amazing picture of something that is really unprecedented in Christianity in 2011. And yet, even though it's unprecedented, it is the absolute ideal that the Lord wants us to ask him for and wants us to surrender our hearts and minds to so we can experience him. Let's be really clear from the outset, as we have been through the first two chapters, that what we are going to look at this morning, this picture that we're going to see in these, first six, in these six verses, is only going to come, will only happen through the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. It cannot happen without the Holy Spirit. It cannot happen without yielding to the Holy Spirit. And it cannot happen without the Spirit moving and doing it. So if there is a church model that Harbor Rock Tabernacle is going to follow, and there are many out there, and they emphasize many things, most of which are other than this. If there is a model that this church is going to follow, it is Acts 2, 42 to 47 because nothing else has the same potency, vitality, or effectiveness, no matter how well it's been researched or marketed or whatever. So when we look at these verses, this is it. This is what we are and what we strive to be as a church. And that should stir us. There should be a deep hunger and longing that God would do this in our midst. We are not there yet. I pray someday we will be. But this is what we strive for. Let's look at what we hope our church will become. Look at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those 
who were saved. Now, the first thing we notice, and we saw that at the end of last week's study, is that there was a hunger for the word of God. There was a hunger for the fellowship of the body. And there was a hunger for calling on the Lord. And I want you to notice in verse 42 that it was the new believers who were devoted to this. There was an instant and public attachment to the ministry of the church and to the priority of being a Christian. And there was a fervent commitment to spiritual maturation. Now, I got convicted as I was studying that that maturation really is is the standard that we should set. We talk about spiritual growth and spiritual growth is a wonderful thing. But but there's a passivity to the word growth. It allows a lot of leeway with less expectations. We say, well, I want to grow. Well, how do you quantify that? I'm, I'm trying to grow in the Lord. Okay, well, is that incremental growth? Is that fast growth? Is that slow growth? Do you have miracle grow on your life? Or are you just kind of steady one day, one little increment, one tiny bit at a time? What do we mean by growth? But when you're talking about maturation, when you say, I want to mature in Christ, there's a daily progress. There are new goals to meet and new levels of strength and confidence. When we were in New York in the end of July, we met um, my, my uh, niece, my new little niece, Emmy. And she was just a cute little baby, and she's got black hair, and she couldn't really hold her head up, and she only drank milk. But we were talking to my brother the other night, and he said, now she's six months, and she can crawl, and she can sit by herself for a while, but if you leave her too long, she does the fade and falls. And, and now she's eating cereal. I mean, it just seems like a few weeks ago that we were there. And she was just a helpless little baby. Now she's crawling and moving around and eating cereal, and, and she's progressing. That's maturation. From birth, being a newborn, to being a baby, to being a crawler, to being a toddler, to a preschooler, to, to going to school, to middle school, to puberty, to high school, to college, to adulthood. It goes so fast. It needs to stop. But every day there's progress, right? Every day there's a new accomplishment. When you have that first child, I mean, you take four million hours of videotape in the first day, like, I'm going to record everything that happens. You get to the third child, it's like, I, I might have caught that on my cell phone. I'm not real sure. <laughs> Poor third children. I'm a third child. We never got recorded doing anything. That first baby, you every day, something new. And if you're away from, if you, oh, what well, we always say, you've grown so much. I haven't seen you. Oh, you just, you look so different. Because there's progress, right? There's maturation. There's every expectation that that little child will go through all of the stages, that she'll mature in her life. Now, there's the same expectation for us as believers, that we're never stagnant, that we're progressing each day, that we're leaving, reaching new levels of faith and obedience and maturity and power and witness and confidence and depth and prayer every day. Not just, well, I got to the end of this year and I look the same as I did last year. No, that's not what a baby does. A baby doesn't stop growing. They keep growing. They keep maturing. And that's what these young believers did. Look at verse 42. I want you to be impressed as we look at this verse, how absolutely simple it is. There's no substitute for what we read in verse 42. Notice, first of all, that they were devoted. 
It's a tremendous Greek word. The word devoted means to constantly be ready and steadfastly attentive to. Constantly ready and steadfastly attentive to. So insert that into the verse. They were constantly ready and steadfastly attentive to the teaching of God's word by spiritually mature leaders. No matter how old we are or how long we have known Christ, learning his word can never stop. In fact, as we mature, our hunger for it should actually increase. The Bible is so rich. It is so full of insight into the character of God and how he works and how we are and what we're called to do in our lives. And we need to see that as a spiritual mind that just keeps yielding richness day after day. And we have to keep, listen, we have to keep digging deeper into it. We can't just keep reading the surface after 20, 30 years of being a believer and saying, well, that's good. I got my little 15 minutes in and I'm done. Every day we have to dig deeper because there's vein after vein after vein after vein after vein of truth that's waiting to just be uncovered in its depth. The word of God is powerful. They were devoted. They were ready and attentive to the teaching of the word. And then they were ready and attentive to fellowship. That's not just getting together. He specifies that in the next one. There is a spiritual aspect to fellowship. It's edification and intercession and growth. It's spurring each other on to love and good works. In other words, it's not just, hey, buddy, how you doing? Good to see you. Yeah, great. Oh, okay, God, bye-bye. Good, good. See you next Sunday. That, that's shallow. That's not this word. This word is, how are you? Let me pray for you. What can I do to help you? How can I encourage you? I'm going to shoot you an email on Tuesday and just tell you I love you. And, and, and this is what God spoke to me. This is one thing we're going to do as the men. We're going to develop an online system where, where we're just encouraging each other. And strengthen each other. So you open up that email in the morning, you're having a crummy day, you're at work. Oh, there's the word of the Lord. Third, they were constantly ready and steadfastly attentive to the breaking of bread. There's a very important component of sharing in each other's lives. Spending casual time investing into deeper relationships. And that requires time and that's a precious commodity. That's something we're, we're hesitant to sacrifice. But we need to. You need this. I need this. We need that fellowship and that breaking bread and the conversation and the laughing and, and not necessarily always talking about deep spiritual things, but there's always a spiritual component to it. Fourth, they were constantly ready and steadfastly attentive to prayer. This is the glue that holds the body together. It's absolutely essential for the church's spiritual health. Why? Why do we make a big deal about prayer? Because prayer keeps us humble and dependent on the Lord. It is hard to pray and be proud. It can be done. We see Jesus talk about it. But it is hard if you are really going to the Lord to call on his name, to, to keep beating your chest and saying, look at me. Prayer keeps us humble. It keeps us dependent. So it's, it's so important for the body to be together. We had a wonderful prayer meeting Wednesday night. But I got convicted as we were there and the kids are outside and people are serving and other people are teaching and there's a lot going on and only some of us got to be there and I got convicted that, that we need to look at a different night. 
We need to look at a different time so more people can get together in the same room and call on the name of the Lord. Now, I don't have a plan. I don't know when that's going to be. I don't know how we'll work it out. But I'm convicted that we need to pray about that. Because many of you are serving. You're not able to be there. And you need to be able to be there. Now, look back at the text in verse 42. Because there's nothing else there. That's it. There is the teaching of the word. There's fellowship. There's the breaking of bread. And there's prayer. I, I don't, I, I can't tell you how, how rare it is to go to a pastor's conference or a conference on church and how to do church and hear something that simple. Somehow we don't want to believe that it's that easy and we'd rather insert our own ideas into how we really make it work. And, and I got to tell you very bluntly this morning, to me, that is just a lack of trust in the Holy Spirit to do what he did next to. It's just a lack of trust. We don't want to believe that God's Spirit moves like that. I'm not talking about tongues. I'm not talking about fire. I'm talking about people getting saved and the church being constantly ready and steadfastly attentive to Bible study and spiritual education so we mature and dynamic, encouraging relationships and prayer. Now you say, oh, Paul, why should that be the priority for a church? What makes that an ideal church? And many would argue, I'm not being critical, I'm just telling you that the state of Christianity right now. Many would argue that that's too old school. It's not attractive enough, it's not relevant enough for a skeptical, pluralistic, short attention span entitled demanding generation. So if we're going to teach them, we have to think more out of the box and Acts 2 is nice and all that, but surely we can't be expected to follow that pattern because it doesn't work in 2011. My, my answer to that charge is that if we want to talk about effectiveness and we want to see actual results of spiritual life change and churches that aren't divided by sin and selfishness and denomination, racism and philosophy and a literal resentment toward each other caused by pride and the arrogance of believing that this is the right way and you don't get it. And every church is guilty of that. If we don't want to talk about, if we want to talk about that and about honoring Christ rather than the mess that's being discussed right now, if we want to talk about that, then all we have to do is look at verses 43 to 47 of Acts 2. We really want to see the church be powerful and effective and, and seeing lives changed and seeing unity and not seeing all this division and controversy and, and difference of philosophy and, and we're going to meet here, we're going to meet there, we're, your music's wrong and your music's wrong and, and you don't dress right, you don't say the right things, you don't have the right website. All this mess, and I'm telling you it is a mess. All we have to do, and you could hold a conference that's five minutes long. All we have to do is follow verses 43 to 47. But you know why we have a mess? Because we've stopped following verses 43 to 47. Oh, we talk about it. And we give lip service to it. Oh, I want to be an Acts 2 church. But are we living Acts 2 lives? Because there are five characteristics, and this is, I'm going to encourage you to write some things down this morning, 
There are five characteristics of the early church that make it so powerful and so worthy to follow. Let's just walk through the text, okay? This is very exegetical this morning. We're just going to walk through verse by verse. Five characteristics of the early church. First of all, they were selfless. They were selfless. Notice that it says in the text that everyone was feeling a sense of awe. The word there is phobos. Who cares, right? Phobos is where we get phobia. It literally means fear and terror. In other words, they were overwhelmed with respect and awe and reverence for the Lord. They were grateful to him and they dreaded doing anything to dishonor them. And all around them, there were many signs and wonders of God's hand. They had a deep sense that God was moving and the spirit of God was working in their midst. And how many know that when the spirit is moving, it inspires you and humbles you to be pure before him. It causes you to be focused on the right priorities and focused on his goodness and focused on his blessings. And that is so key because it is so easy to become self-focused. And when we're self-focused, it leads to discontentment. And when discontentment happens, many bad things happen. Philippians 4.11 says, learn to be content in all things. Nothing and no one is perfect other than the Lord, but we often have this expectation that if it just isn't how I want it, that we're allowed to feel sorry for ourselves, and that creates problems because we need an outlet for our frustrations. If you want a living example of that, again, look at what's going on in New York. They're frustrated, they're selfish, they're entitled, that they, they want what they want. And now there are demonstrations, and now they're starting to spread. And they even became very violent and Rome this week. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And you know what? When that happens within the body, it is extremely detrimental. But look at the contrast of verses 42 to 44. It says they were together. There was a constancy of relationship. There was a profound unity. Why? How does that happen? It comes from being self. Then second, we see that they were sacrificial. Sacrifice is a natural result of selflessness. It says they shared everything. No one had a need. Anyone was willing to sacrifice to help somebody else. This is not socialism. This is Christian love. There wasn't an attitude of it's about me, either overtly or subvertly. It says they were of one mind. Five times in six verses, it gives that impression, that concept. They were of one mind. They were of one mind. They were of one mind. And that came out of verses 42 and 43, that they were dependent on and walking in the Spirit of God. And it says they went from house to house. Remember, you've got 120 plus 3,000, and nobody had a big mansion. But they're just going from house to house. Don't miss that. It means nobody was dominating. Nobody was putting themselves first. No one says, well, I'm going to host all the time. I have the best house, or I make the best meals. Nobody was being a Martha. Oh, we'll go to your house today. We'll go to our house tomorrow. Oh, listen, this is not about us. There was no public or private agenda that wasn't in their thinking in any way. And, and I read this again and again, and I kept thinking, that almost seems unthinkable and unrealistic, except for the fact that you realize that it was a direct result of the state of their hearts and minds spiritually. I don't care about me. Listen, it's not, I'm not worried about me. Come on, let's go to your house. Tomorrow you come to my house. Oh, let's just, let's just share. 
What's going on in our hearts and minds drives everything. The depth of our humility and joy is a window. Listen now. The depth of our humility and joy is a window into the condition of our spiritual walk. That's, how do, we, how do we know that? Look at the text. Because they were filled with gladness. That's the joy of walking in the spirit and being so grateful every moment of every day that God has saved you and redeemed you and sanctified you and cleansed you and filled you with his spirit and that he is faithful and loving and has promises and keeps his word and gives us his word and teaches us through his spirit and blesses us and on and on and on. But just the opposite of true, a lack of contentment and a lack of constant gratitude and praise breeds discontentment. All of a sudden, we start to think about ourselves and our hearts and minds get involved and we get frustrated. Listen, we need that perspective of God and his goodness, which keeps us from putting ourselves first, because when we put ourselves first, we are joyless and miserable. Look at the last thing it says. It says they were known for their sincerity of heart. The phrase means singleness of desire for the Lord. They had a character and reputation that exemplified their love for Christ and it gave them spiritual integrity. Now I want you to stop just for a minute and look back through those verses. And I want you to notice that there is nothing selfish anywhere in that text. There's not one verse that even hints at selfishness. And that is why those verses are the ideal of what the church, the body of Christ, should look like. Now, this is not just some pie-in-the-sky allegory. Oh, wouldn't it be great if we all shared and loved each other and helped each other and people sold things to help each other and, and we really... Wouldn't that be great? No, this is real. This is history. This is a historical narrative by a respected doctor who was an eyewitness to it that that was actually how the church looked, that was how it functioned, and that's how it was known in their culture. And it sprung from being filled with the Spirit and fulfilling their calling in Christ. Anything that is separate from that is contrary to that. If it is, not of, the, if it is of the self, it is not of the Spirit. Which is why self-interest creates such a destructive atmosphere in the church. What's the proof of that? Turn over for a second to 1 Corinthians. Keep your hand here in Acts 2 because we're coming back. But turn over a couple books to 1 Corinthians. Because 1 Corinthians, two books after Acts, is the most painful example of selfishness and family dysfunction in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians is the antithesis to Acts 2, 42 to 43, to the extent that it's amazing that both are called churches because they are such a polar opposite of each other. One is the model of what the Lord wants the church to look like and the other is a disgrace. The other is an embarrassment to the name of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians, start in chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind, the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you by Chloe's people 
that there are quarrels among you. Each one of you saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. They're so fractured, two books after Acts, that they're having a contest based on who led them to Christ. And then you go over to chapter 3 and verse 3. He says, for you're still fleshly, since there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshy and are you not walking like mere men? They continue to accede to the flesh and it causes them to stay as spiritual infants. Look over chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there's a morality among you, an immorality of such a kind that doesn't exist even among the Gentiles who are considered filthy. That someone's had his father's wife and you become arrogant and have not mourned so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? They're immoral and unashamed about it. Nobody's called it out. Paul says it's unmitigated arrogance. Chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote to you not to associate with immoral people, not the people of the world, but those who are in the church. He goes on in verse 11. I want you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's immoral or covetous or idolater or reveler or drunker or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Have you heard that preached in any church in the last 20 years? That's Scripture. That's the Spirit of God saying that. But we, oh, no, we can't do that. Uh, so do we live by the word or not? Is somebody in the body it is a swindler or a thief or a drunkard or covetous or immoral? Boy, that's a pretty wide landscape, isn't it? You're not even supposed to eat with them. Now think about what this is telling us. Because this is the example that, that we're being given Chapter 6, they're suing each other over frivolous things. They're getting a bad reputation. Chapter 9, he says your love of liberty is discouraging and actually harming other believers because it's tempting them. It's damaging their maturation. Chapter 12, he says you're using your spiritual gifts to, to build yourself up and have people pay attention to you. And that's a disgrace. And on and on and on it goes. Everything that's in 1 Corinthians is everything Acts 2 is not. How did that happen? It's because people got selfish. And they stopped sacrificing. And they stopped thinking of each other. And they started thinking of themselves. Third characteristic. Go back to Acts 2. They were servant-minded. Too often the attitude we're tempted with is summed up in the following words. What's in it for me? That is an appeal to our emotions and the need to placate ourselves. And in churches, it carries a wide variety of applications. You've heard of the term, I have an app for that. Well, we have an app for a lot of things in churches based on how we feel. Let me see if I can cover most of them. Hopefully, I can offend every person. I don't like the music, I don't like the schedule, I don't like the length of service, I don't like the temperature, I don't like the call to serve. I think the sermons are too convicting, I think the sermons are too long, I think the sermons are too short. It's not our problem here. <laughs> I want more power, I want more respect, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. 
more than anything, we don't want to be inconvenienced. And our culture plays to our desires, so we say, give me multiple options, don't challenge me, and just make me happy. Now, that can be subtle or overt. Either way, it's damaging to the health of the body. It's the insidious nature of self that creeps into everything. So watch out. I have to watch out. I have to watch out the way I'm talking about this this morning so I don't seem like I'm coming across as judgmental or, or holier than thou, because believe me, I'm not. Self always tries to creep in, so we have to guard our heart and our mind and our family and our children and our walk and our church and our witness, because it will try to creep in. Now, I feel so blessed that over the last 11 months, we have seen a general absence of that attitude. But I'm telling you right now, the temptation to it will be stronger and stronger every day, especially as we start to reach out and witness to people and start to open up and say, come, be part of this, see what the Lord's doing. And we'll be inclined to give in to it. And when it starts, especially if it's allowed, it, it, it breeds dissatisfaction. And now I feel unheard and unappreciated. And I start to tell somebody else. And they tell somebody else. And, and it becomes a little private conversation. And then it spreads like lice. And when it happens, if it's allowed, it damages the church. So how do we stop it? Well, the only way to stop it is to start with yourself. I can't even stand here this morning and say, you need to stop it. If I'm doing it, then I'm guilty. I have no right to tell you. So it starts with me, and it starts with you. And we have to ask ourselves, am I doing this? Am I doing what was just described? Am I selfish? Do I want it my way? Am I never satisfied? Am I feeling annoyed that I'm not being honored? We can all raise our hands on that one. And if you are actively doing it, Say, who am I talking to about it? And why am I telling them? And what the da what's the damage that's being done? A and if somebody comes to me and starts, am I stopping it? Let me tell you right now, I've said this before, I'll say it again. If somebody comes to you and criticizes another person, you say, stop talking, I'm going to walk with you, and we're going to go find that person, and I want you to tell them what you just told me. And I will go with you, and if it's the truth, I will support you, and then we will ask that person for an apology. If it's not the truth, you're going to have to apologize to them. But I'm not going to listen to this. Now, that's how we have to live. Because if we don't, guess what? We're going to look like 1 Corinthians. And I don't want to look like 1 Corinthians. All right, I've gotten worked up. Number four. Fourth trait was that they were sanctified. And no one was a greater example of that than Peter. It struck me this week. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, talking to Peter, which might lead us to say, why Peter? Because he was anything but a rock. He had been impulsive and selfish and made poor decisions, and he had dramatically failed Christ. He denied Christ publicly three times. Now, for perspective, imagine this morning if I stood in this pulpit and say, I deny Jesus Christ. And imagine if I said it again. And imagine if the third time I said it, I swore. You don't think that would be some sort of scandal tomorrow morning? You wouldn't look at me and go, that's the guy that needs to lead our church. You would go, I've lost all confidence in you. 
I have no idea what happened to you. Your theology is wrong, and I won't have anything to do with you or this church ever again. Now, Peter did that. And it's amazing that of all 12 apostles, Peter was the one that Christ selected to lead the first wave of post-resurrection ministry. But listen, when you study Acts 2 to 4, you understand it. Because Peter became so different. He was a living example of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. There is no other explanation for it. There is no way someone can change like that in 50 days without the Spirit's control. And some of you this morning are real living examples of that yourselves. You are living examples of the dramatic work of God's sanctification. And if they, if Peter can become a rock for the Lord, then you and I can. If he can become sanctified and selfless, then you and I can through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it requires being willing to be set apart because that's what sanctified means. Set apart, not like the world. This is a hard word this morning, but this is God's word. We need to be set apart. Be ye separate. Doesn't mean we're snobs. Doesn't mean we isolate ourselves. Doesn't mean we don't have anything to do with non-believers. That's not the commission Christ gave us. It means that our lives have to look different. We're supposed to love the Lord and live by the word of the Lord and, and, and have everything in our lives aligned with the Lord. That's what it means to be sanctified. And the early church was sanctified. They didn't care what people thought. They weren't worried about being attractive. They were worried about honoring Christ. And when they honored Christ, here's the thing that we don't understand in Christianity today. When they honored Christ and stood for Christ, God blessed them immensely. Number five, when we're done. Fifth characteristic of the early church was that they were spiritually aware. We're going to study this more in the next few weeks, but notice that they viewed everything from a spiritual perspective. They prioritized preparation and they recognized spiritual attack. And I want to tell you, over the last few weeks, our church and our people have been under spiritual warfare in a new way. And I can't imagine that that's a coincidence. When we said, we're going to focus on outreach and we're going to renovate a building for ministry and we're going to have a prayer meeting and we're going to have this special service next Sunday where we're going to invite people to come and be blessed. Guess what? Of course the enemy's going to attack that. And he's going to give us illness and busyness and distraction. And more than anything, listen now, he's going to stir up selfish feelings and try to create relational conflict with the body. And that should not surprise us. But you might be thinking, oh, that's hard and it's discouraging and I want it to be easier. Listen, I do too. I'd love for it to be easier. I'd love to not be sick to my stomach all last night and have my computer shut down and not have everything work right. I'd love that. That'd be a blast. But if anything, instead of giving the enemy an opportunity and becoming discouraged by that and becoming defeated by that and saying, well, it's, it's just so much and I just can't handle it. Instead, we should be encouraged that the devil is having to fight our faith and our servanthood and trying to undercut our ministry and our witness by trying to get us to be self-focused. Paul said these things are happening for the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, we're going to have to take some stuff 
so the gospel can advance. And I'll tell you, I am very excited for what that means for next Sunday and how the Lord is going to work in our lives and the lives of the people coming up from Chicago Tabernacle and all the people who are coming, especially visitors and people who have not yet trusted Christ. I'm excited for that. But we have to be aware. And let me tell you, the early church, I, I've been impressed about this. I'm done. The early church never responded with discouragement anywhere in the book of Acts. When Peter and John are arrested, they speak with boldness and confidence and purpose. When Stephen is martyred and the stones are hitting him in the head, he prays to the Lord, Lord, forgive them. When Peter is put in jail, the church has an all-night prayer meeting until the Lord works and gets him out. When Paul and Silas are in chains and the earthquake comes, they're singing and praising God. And as soon as the opportunity is there, they lead somebody to Christ. Every time the church faced hardship in Acts, it responded with joy. Show me that in Corinth or Ephesus or Colossae or Galatia. It's not there. The only church that seemed to kind of get it right was Philippi. Believer and church, listen now, this is how our mind has to work. If we have any hope and any desire of becoming an ideal church, it starts with you and me and our allowance of self based on our attitude toward Christ. But there is nothing in this text that says that this is limited to first century Acts 2. There is not a word in this text that says this can't happen now. So if we want a model, it's the model of Acts 2. If you want the ideal church, don't leave it. Strive with me, and I'm flawed as the next guy, but strive with me to be this type of believer so we can be this type of church. Because that's our goal. That's what we're going to ask the Lord for. That we would feel a sense of awe and signs and wonders would take place and we'd be together and have things in common and share with each other as anyone had need and day by day continue with one mind and break bread and take our meals together with glad and sincerity of heart and praise God and have favor and that the Lord will add people daily. Not just transferred people. People getting saved. Lord, may it happen. Let's pray. Father, we ask you this morning to stir our hearts. Lord, we want to be this kind of church. We're not that kind of church. We want to be this kind of church. A church that honors you. A church that declares your name boldly. A church that takes a stand. A church that honors your word. A church that calls on your name. A church that's unified a church that loves each other and loves other people, a church that reaches out. Father, that's our calling. Anything short of that is dishonoring to you. So Lord, work in our lives, we pray. Impress upon our hearts the need to walk in holiness, the need to sacrifice self, so that we can be used by your spirit. Lord, fill us with your spirit, we ask this morning. Cleanse us as a church. Cleanse us as believers. Fill us with your spirit. Fill this ministry with your spirit, Lord, because that's the only way we want to move forward, is by your spirit.
by your help, by your leading. And Lord, as we see the evidence of that day after day, you've blessed us so much this week. We will honor you and praise you and give you the glory and declare your name more fervently. Lord, we love you this morning. We're so humbled and so grateful by what you have done. Work in our lives, Lord. Work in our midst so that we may walk with you every single day, pleasing you, honoring you. Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.